Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast, this is your host Paul, and this is episode 136. This show is entitled, Ten Stories Behind Dr. Seuss. But first up this week, a story by Ewan Calloway from the scientificamerican.com website. The Easter Island statues might have been walked out of the quarry. A contentious theory was recently put to the test with an almost life-size replica. Easter Island's gargantuan stone statues walked. That is the controversial claim from archaeologists who have demonstrated the feat with a 4.4-tonne model of one of the baffling busts. Nearly 1,000 statues litter Easter Island's 163 square kilometres, with the largest weighing 74 tonnes and standing 10 metres tall. Much about the megaliths is mystery. But few of the enigmas are more perplexing than how the statues were shuttled kilometres from the rock quarries where they were carved. Archaeologists have proposed that the Polynesians who settled Easter Island 800 years ago or more laid the statues, called Moai, prone and then rolled them along on logs. That idea supports the theory that the settlers, known as Rapa Nui, became so obsessed with statue building that they denuded the island of its forests. In his book Collapse, Jared Diamond, a geographer at the University of California, Los Angeles, touted Easter Island as the poster child for a civilization that blew through its natural resources and folded. It's a great story, but the archaeological evidence doesn't really support it, says Carl Lippo, an archaeologist at California State University, Long Beach, whose team instead proposes that the Rapa Nui walked the Moai by rocking them from side to side as one might move a refrigerator. Some statues are found on stone pedestals, others are in incomplete forms along the roads or in a quarry. The incomplete statues, which Lippo says would have been modified once they reached their pedestals, lean noticeably forward, 
in a position that doesn't lend itself to horizontal transport. Broken moai along roads which were presumably abandoned also point to vertical transport. On roads that slope upwards away from the quarry, the statues lie on their backs, whereas downward sloping roads tend to be littered with face-planted moai, Lippo notes. Lippo and Terry Hunt, an archaeologist at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu, noted these points in their contentious book, The Statues That Walked. A US television program later asked the pair to test their hypothesis with a life-sized model. With the help of a shipbuilding company, they constructed a three-metre-tall concrete model of one of the statues. The researchers had no clue how to get the model walking. An aeronautical engineer can explain why a plane flies, but you don't want one flying a plane, says Lipo. Here we have this giant five-ton thing. Now figure out how it actually moves. It was quite frustrating. The statue could not stand on its own and had to be rested on supports. But after several trying days, a team of 18 people, chanting heave-ho, managed to get the thing walking with three hemp ropes, one tied to it from behind to keep the statue from falling on its face, and the other two on either side. It really hauls, says Lippo. The team got the statue to travel 100 metres in under an hour. Lippo suggests that a small number of people working part-time could efficiently transport Moai, questioning a scenario in which Easter Island's population ballooned and later crashed, as Diamond and others have proposed. But not everyone is convinced by Lippo and Hunt's work. What they did was a stunt and not an experiment, says Joanne Van Tielberg, director of the Easter Island Statue Project at the University of California, Los Angeles. The shape of the team's model statue is not an accurate facsimile of the Moai, she says, so any conclusions drawn from it are irrelevant. What this work has done is disengaged the statues from the archaeological context, and I think any time you do that, you enter, however gingerly, into fantasy and speculation on a level that isn't scientific, says Van Tilburg, whose own team has demonstrated that Moai can be moved horizontally along logs. Yet aspects of the statue's design seem intended for walking, contends Lippo. Their centre of mass is centred vertically and horizontally, but sits slightly forward of centre on the front-to-back axis, making it easier to rock the statues back and forth. Furthermore, the statue's relatively broad bodies and elongated heads make them stable when walking. What's cool is that their shape really reflects the engineering of the Rapa Nui people. They built these things to do this, says Lippo. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info, click on the link to the Origins podcast show notes, the link to episode 136, and then the link to this article, there are a couple of videos within the article showing both attempts at moving the moai.
Few companies can claim they altered the path of an entire medium. But that's exactly what Polaroid did in the 1950s, 60s and 70s to photography. Founded by Edwin H. Land in 1937, Polaroid was the apple of its day, and Land, the original Steve Jobs. The Idea Factory churned out iconic products such as the SX-70, the one-step instant camera that now resides in the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York City. In his new book, Instant, the Story of Polaroid, Christopher Bananas of New York chronicles the rise and fall of the company and details how it changed the way we save memories. From the www.smithsonianmag.com website, why Polaroid inspired both Steve Jobs and Andy Warhol. And the rest of the article is done in a series of questions. What made you want to write a book about Polaroid? In 1983, when I was 14, I got my first camera, an old one from the 50s that I bought in a junk shop. I started using it and there is something bewitching and strange about a picture you see right away. I used it on and off through college and beyond. Then in 2008, when Polaroid announced the very end of instant film production, there was a show going on at the Whitney Museum, Museum of American Art, on Robert Maplethorpe's Polaroids. I wrote a little story for New York about this sort of moment when the medium was going away, but it was also being celebrated in fine arts. I called up a bunch of Polaroid artists, people like Chuck Close, who work in Polaroid film, and they were really angry about having this material taken away from them. It led me to discover that there was a Polaroid cult out there of artists, enthusiasts and people who just love this old way of making pictures. Your description of Edwin Land was reminiscent of Steve Jobs in terms of innovation and design. Was Polaroid the apple of its day? Land and Jobs were both just obsessed with making a product perfect They both worked like crazy. They both really believed in locating a company at the spot where science and technology meet fine arts. And maybe most important of all, they both felt that if you make a fantastic product that the world has never seen before, then the marketing and selling will take good care of itself. Land once said, marketing is what you do if your product is no good. Thirty years later, they asked Jobs how much market research he was doing on whatever the Apple product was at the moment, and he said, We didn't do any. None. It's not the consumer's job to know what he wants. It's the same philosophy. Land was one of Jobs' first heroes, and they met a few times in Cambridge, when Land was sort of nudged out of Polaroid and into retirement in 1982. Jobs was interviewed not too long after that, and he said, That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This man is a national treasure. Land made some pretty remarkable predictions for the future. He predicted cell phone photography and Instagram. He may not have specifically seen exactly the device you have in your hand, but he came pretty close. There's a fantastic film of Land from 1970 where he's explaining his vision of the future of photography as he saw it when he started the business in 1937. 
He said, we're a long way from a camera that will be like the telephone. Something you use every day, like your pencil or your eyeglasses. Then what he does is he reaches into his breast pocket, he pulls out a wallet and he says, it would be like a wallet, and the thing is black and about seven inches long and about three inches wide, and he holds it up in front of his eyes vertically, and it looks for all the world like he's got a cell phone in his hand. Really, the thing he wanted was almost no impediment between the photographer and having the picture available to you. In the early days of Polaroid, you had to pull tabs and throw switches and things to make the processing procedure work. His goal all along had been, you click, it does everything, and then you just see your picture. Effortless. A cell phone is about as close as you're going to get to that. Why did famous photographers such as Ansel Adams and Walker Evans like using Polaroids so much? Different people liked it for different reasons. Adams loved Polaroid because he was such a technician in black and white that he could really see what he was doing on the spot. If he was hauling a camera up into Yellowstone on his back or in his station wagon, it was extremely valuable to him to be able to see a picture on the spot. Other people liked it for other reasons. Andy Warhol liked the intimacy and that you could see what you got right away. Other people were impatient, especially when they were learning. Maplethorpe learned to shoot with a Polaroid camera because he was both unwilling to wait for the lab and also because a lot of his photos were so explicit that it was not a good idea to send them to the lab. What do you consider the most iconic photographs ever taken with a Polaroid? The Warhol portraits that you see in galleries and museums all the time of Liza Minnelli and Elizabeth Taylor are based on those silk screens, which are in turn based on Polaroid photos he shot of all these people. That was his work process. He would take about 50 portraits of anybody he was going to do a painting of and work from those to make silk screens. There are also a number of the Ansel Adams landscapes of Northern California. The ones you see of Yosemite and other famous scenes are often shot on large format professional grade Polaroid film. There's one portrait, El Capitan Winter Sunrise from 1968, that is like nothing else. It's a fantastic demonstration of what you can do with the right camera and a sheet of Polaroid film. Describe the rivalry between Kodak and Polaroid that resulted in the biggest settlement ever paid out. They had this uneasy dance for most of their lives because Kodak was in the beginning Polaroid's first big customer and for many years supplied certain components of Polaroid film. Then they sort of had a falling out in the late 60s because Kodak realised that it had been supporting not a company that was complementary to its business, but somebody who was increasingly taking market share. Kodak had also heard the first inklings of SX-70, which was going to be a blockbuster if it worked, and they suddenly thought, are we giving away the game here? When SX-70 came around, Kodak had a big program going to produce its own instant camera and film, which came around four years later. In 1976, Kodak introduced its instant photography line, a week and a half later, Polaroid sued them for patent infringement. They spent 14 and a half years in court, and when the settlement came in, 
Polaroid versus Kodak, Polaroid won. Kodak not only had to pay the largest fine ever paid out, which was nearly a billion dollars, but also had to buy back all those cameras. If you had a Kodak instant camera in the 80s, you got a letter saying Kodak will send you a cheque and a couple of shares of stock. The total in the end was $925 million that Kodak had to pay Polaroid and it stood as the largest ever settlement paid out in a patent case until last month when Samsung was ordered to pay Apple $1.049 billion in damages. Land felt as though Kodak had come along with a clumsier, less elegant version of exactly what he'd done without advancing the game, and he was a little offended. He once said, I expected more of Eastman. In Apple vs Samsung, a great deal of what was driving things at the beginning was that Jobs was disgusted with Android for exactly the same reasons. It was precisely the same competitive instincts shot through with outrage at the mediocrity of it all. What started the downfall of Polaroid? There are a lot of different threads that sort of come together. It's little stumbles that turn into a snowball effect. Land didn't put a good successor in place, or more accurately, he didn't have a succession plan in place. His successors did some things right and some things wrong, but what was missing in the time after Land's leadership was a big idea. They did a pretty good job of coming up with products that enhanced the technology they already had, but they never quite figured out what the next thing was going to be. There were big research projects within Polaroid to work on digital cameras, to work on inkjet printers and other technologies. A combination of conservatism and entrenched habits and a little fear of what the future without film would look like economically all snowballed together to sort of bind up the company in one business model that it had been building for a long time. And finally, what is the impossible project? And how do they hope to bring Polaroid back? The current Polaroid is alive. They are trying to make interesting little products again. It's a much smaller world view than they once had. Then there is the Impossible Project, which when Polaroid quit the film business in 2008, Dr Florian Capps, Andre Bosman and Marwan Saba dived into and brought the tooling in the very last factory before it was torn down. They have spent a couple of years trying to make film, and when they introduced it in 2010, it was definitely a beta test. First generation film was very problematic. They weren't able to use the old formulas because they couldn't get the chemicals anymore. Those companies went out of business. Each batch since then has gotten better, and last month they introduced the first film that actually behaves like Polaroid 600 film did. It looks like it's supposed to. It's easy to shoot, and it's marvellous. They really finally got it to where it needed to be. By the spring of 1862, a year into the American Civil War, 
Major General Ulysses S. Grant had pushed deep into Confederate territory along the Tennessee River. In early April, he was camped at Pittsburgh Landing near Shiloh, Tennessee, waiting for Major General Don Carlos Buell's army to meet up with him. On the morning of April 6, Confederate troops based out of nearby Corinth, Mississippi, launched a surprise offensive against Grant's troops, hoping to defeat them before the Second Army arrived. Grant's men, augmented by the first arrivals from the Ohio, managed to hold some ground though, and establish a battle line anchored with artillery. Fighting continued until after dark, and by the next morning the full force of the Ohio had arrived, and the Union outnumbered the Confederates by more than 10,000. The Union troops began forcing the Confederates back, and while a counter-attack stopped their advance, it did not break their line. Eventually the Southern commanders realised they could not win and fell back to Corinth until another offensive in August. All told, the fighting at the Battle of Shiloh left more than 16,000 soldiers wounded and more than 3,000 dead, and neither Federal or Confederate medics were prepared for the carnage. The bayonet and bullet wounds were bad enough on their own, but soldiers of the era were also prone to infections. Wounds contaminated by shrapnel or dirt became warm, moist refuges for bacteria, which would feast on a buffet of damaged tissue. After months marching and eating field rations on the battlefront, many soldiers' immune systems were weakened and couldn't fight off infection on their own. Even the army doctors couldn't do much. Microorganisms weren't well understood, and the germ theory of disease and antibiotics were still a few years away. Many soldiers died from infections that modern medicine would be able to nip in the bud. From the www.mentalfloss.com Why some Civil War soldiers glowed in the dark. And it's written by Matt Soniak. Some of the Shiloh soldiers sat in the mud for two rainy days and nights, waiting for the medics to get around to them. As dusk fell, the first night, some of them noticed something very strange. Their wounds were glowing, casting a faint light into the darkness of the battlefield. Even stranger, when the troops were eventually moved to field hospitals, those whose wounds had glowed had a better survival rate and had their wounds heal more quickly and cleanly than their unilluminated brothers-in-arms. The seemingly protective effect of the mysterious light earned it the nickname Angel's Glow. In 2001, almost 140 years after the battle, 17-year-old Bill Martin was visiting the Shiloh battlefield with his family. When he heard about the glowing wounds, he asked his mum, a microbiologist at the USDA Agricultural Research Service, who had studied luminescent bacteria that lived in the soil, about it. So you know, he comes home and, Mum, you're working with the glowing bacteria. Could that have caused the glowing wounds? Martin told Science Netlinks. And so being a scientist, of course I said, well, you can do an experiment to find out. And that's just what Bill did. He and his friend John Curtis did some research on both the bacteria and the conditions during the Battle of Shiloh. 
They learned that Photorobatus luminescens, the bacteria that Bill's mum studied, and the one he thought might have something to do with the glowing worms, lived in the guts of parasitic worms called nematodes, and the two share a strange life cycle. Nematodes hunt down insect larvae in the soil or on plant surfaces, burrow into their bodies, and take up residence in their blood vessels. There, they puke up the P. luminescence bacteria living inside them. Upon their release, the bacteria, which are bioluminescent and glow a soft blue, begin producing a number of chemicals that kill the insect host and suppress and kill all the other microorganisms already inside it. This leaves P. luminescence and their nematode partner to feed, grow and multiply without interruptions. As the worms and the bacteria eat and eat, and the insect corpse is more or less hollowed out, the nematode eats the bacteria. This isn't a double cross, but part of the move to greener pastures. The bacteria recolonize the nematode's guts so they can hitch a ride as it bursts forth from the corpse in search of a new host. The next meal shouldn't be hard to find either, since P. luminescence already sent them an invitation to the party. Just before they got back in their nematode taxi, P. luminescence were at a critical mass in the insect corpse, and scientists think that many glowing bacteria attract other insects to the body and make the nematodes transition to a new host much easier. Looking at historical records of the battle, Bill and John figured out that the weather and soil conditions were right for both P. luminescence and their nematode partners. Their lab experiments with the bacteria, however, showed that they couldn't live at human body temperature, making the soldiers' wounds an inhospitable environment. Then they realised what some country music fans already knew. Tennessee in the spring is green and cool. Nighttime temperatures in early April would have been low enough for the soldiers who were out there in the rain for two days to get hypothermia lowering their body temperature and giving P. luminescence a good home. Based on the evidence for P. luminescence presence at Shiloh and the reports of the strange glow, the boys concluded that the bacteria, along with the nematodes, got into the soldiers' wounds from the soil. This not only turned their wounds into nightlights, but may have saved their lives. The chemical cocktail that P. luminescence uses to clear out its competition probably helped kill off other pathogens that might have infected the soldiers' wounds. Since neither P. luminescence nor its associated nematode species are very infectious to humans, they would have soon been cleared out by the immune system themselves, which is not to say that you should be self-medicating with bacteria. P. luminescence infections can occur and can result in some nasty ulcers. The soldiers shouldn't have been thanking the angels so much as the microorganisms.
One afternoon in the early 1950s, a young biochemist left his suburban lab bench at Britain's Mill Hill National Institute of Medical Research and boarded a tube train to Leicester Square. His destination was on nearby Lyle Street, in an area which today makes up part of London's glittering West End theatre district. But in the post-war years, the sector was better known as a hectic hub for two of humanity's oldest professions. Only one of these was of interest to the young scientist. The girls hawking their wares seemed to sense his single-mindedness and kept their distance as the greenhorn scientist turned his attention to his true quarry, the vast abundance of second-hand military hardware that could be found in the shops lining Lyle Street. Specifically, he was looking for war surplus radar equipment. His intention was to cannibalise a suitable radio frequency transmitter for the purpose of reanimating dead, frozen hamsters. From the www.daminteresting.com website, an article by Matt Castle. Reanimated rodents and the meaning of life. The purposeful young biochemist was working in an exciting field so new that it didn't yet have an official name. Eventually the term cryobiology, literally meaning frosty life, gained currency. One of his colleagues at Mill Hill was Dr Audrey Smith, the leading light in a series of hamster freezing and reanimation experiments. These dramatic and oft-quoted experiments have since achieved legendary status among cryobiologists, including researchers of the credible variety and researchers of the will freeze your head and bring it back to life attached to the body of a spaniel when future technology allows variety. Yet they have never been repeated. The basic procedure worked like this. 1. Obtain desired number of golden hamsters. 2. Place in ice bath at temperature minus 5 degrees Celsius. 3. Leave hapless rodents to cool until hearts have stopped beating, respiration has ceased, animals are frozen rigid and are, by any conventional definition of life, no longer alive. Number four, after 60 to 90 minutes, remove hamsters from ice bath. Five, if required, cut sections of one or more control animals to determine degree of freezing. Please note, animals thus examined should not be used in subsequent reanimation attempts. Six, warm the hearts of the frozen hamsters until they start up again followed by gentle rewarming of the rest of the animals until miraculous recovery occurs. 7. Determine number of survivors. Serves 5. In the initial experiments, reanimation of the hamsters was carried out using the crude method of pressing a hot metal spoon against the animal's chest until circulation resumed. The important thing was to warm the heart first. The researchers soon found that simply placing the hamster in a warm bath of water would lead to an over-rapid resumption of circulation, promptly stopping the heart again due to contact with the freezing cold blood returning from the animal's extremities. 
By applying heat to the heart first, a more gradual and ultimately successful reanimation could take place. But it was felt that the use of the hot metal spoons was a step too far. The burning and singeing of the skin caused obvious distress to the reanimated animals. The purpose of the young biochemist's visit to Lyle Street was to make this aspect of the rewarming process more humane. By adapting an old aircraft radio frequency transmitter to emit microwaves, a diathermy device was made which could heat the hamster's hearts externally without damaging the skin. In the same way, a microwave oven cooks ready meals without melting the plastic container. The astute scientist who pioneered this technique and later braved the whores of Lyle Street to find suitable equipment was a man named James Lovelock. In his autobiography, Homage to Gaia, he describes how his work on hamster reanimation got him thinking about the meaning of life. According to conventional definitions of life, the frozen hamsters were decidedly dead. The unfortunate rodents weren't moving, they weren't breathing, their hearts had stopped, and they certainly weren't eating, drinking or reproducing. Yet they could be made almost as good as new with a little bit of hot spoon or microwave therapy. He wondered if life might have a broader meaning. This set him on the path to the theory for which he is most well known, the Gaia Hypothesis. Thirteen years after he left the Mill Hill Laboratories and the field of cryobiology, he finally published the landmark paper, Atmospheric Homeostasis by and for the Biosphere, the Gaia Hypothesis, with his biologist collaborator Lynn Margulis. Gaia theory proposes the existence of a system of complex feedback mechanisms that work across the whole of the Earth's surface. These involve both living and non-living parts of the biosphere, which act to keep the chemistry and temperature of the planetary surface comfortable for life. In some important respects, this entire system could be considered as akin to living itself. Lovelock's novelist friend William Golding found an appropriate name from Greek mythology, that of the earth goddess Gaia. At first the idea was met with disbelief, then with ridicule. To this day, Gaia theory is still far from being universally accepted among the scientific community. Although Lovelock was careful to stress that his theory wasn't suggesting that the Earth was actually alive, only that the Earth system mimics a living, self-regulating entity in some ways, many scientists struggled with the analogy. For a start, the Earth doesn't eat or move purposefully, and it has never displayed any discernible interest in mating with neighbouring planets. It was a difficult concept to reconcile with the traditionalist view that something was alive only if it met certain established criteria, such as being capable of metabolism or growth. Meanwhile, cryobiology research continued. By the time Lovelock left Mill Hill in the 1960s, the freezing and successful reanimation of hamsters using microwave diathermy was almost routine. But there were limitations to the technique. For a start, the temperatures involved never went further than a few degrees below the freezing point of water, and only for an hour or so at a time. 
although in some cases more than 80% of the water in the skin and 60% of the water in the brain had changed to ice, the animals were never 100% frozen. Thus, most of the hamster's cells were spared the tattering, which is characteristic of full ice crystal formation. The results were certainly dramatic, demonstrating that it is possible to lower complex organisms to below freezing temperatures and then successfully reanimate them. The knowledge they gained had clear relevance to the aim of improving human health. Current medical advances that derive from early cryobiology research include techniques for the storage and transport of human tissues destined for transplant. Many aspects of low temperature surgery and experimental techniques for improving outcomes in resuscitation after cardiac arrest. Though these researchers were not advocating the freezing of dead human bodies or heads for later reanimation, their research did become the basis for just such a movement, a scandal-tainted offshoot of cryobiology known as cryonics. But attempts to repeat the experiments with larger mammals and at lower temperatures have never been successful. And neither was the phenomenon entirely original. In the natural world, numerous critters have been pulling a similar trick for millennia. Fish swim in freezing polar seas with antifreeze proteins in their blood. Wood frogs' circulation and breathing stops when they partially freeze during the winter. And even mammals like the Arctic ground squirrels can hibernate successfully at temperatures of minus 3 degrees Celsius with no need to resort to microwave diathermy for reanimation after months, not minutes, spent at sub-zero temperatures. Less spectacular but perhaps more significant experiments in cryobiology were also carried out by Smith's team. Attempts to reanimate frozen sperm in 1949 were only successful when a mislabeled bottle of preservative solution was later found out to contain glycerol. Glycerol, which lowers the freezing point of water, is widely used to this day as a cryopreservative agent and has been found in many cold-loving creatures in nature. Dr Smith later investigated the phenomenon of supercooling, which involves techniques to prevent the formation of ice crystals in cells despite cooling them to temperatures below the freezing point of water. Of course, Mill Hill did not have a monopoly on ghoulish cryobiology experiments and related research was carried out elsewhere. Notably, a researcher at Japan's Kobe University, Isamu Suda, froze cat brains in solutions containing glycerol for extended periods in the 1960s. When the brains were rewarmed, up to two and a half years later, brainwave activity was recorded in some of the specimens. Suda, however, was unable to ascertain where the frozen cat's brains dream of electric mice. These days, ethical considerations limit the scope of such research. Animal experiments still take place at Mill Hill, but only under a strict ethical review process, which exhaustively balances any possible benefits of the research against actual or potential suffering to the animals involved. It can be safely assumed that the hamster freezing experiments in their original form would be well and truly off-menu. The potential demonstrated by frozen hamster research has yet to be fully realised. 
but perhaps one day Dr. Audrey Smith's groundbreaking efforts will lay the foundation for powerful new medical procedures. Indeed, a hot oversized spoon might one day miraculously transform frozen human cadavers back into living, breathing, productive zombies to slave away in the mechanised underworld of the future. Until that long-hoped-for day arrives, perhaps, like James Lovelock, we can console ourselves with the idea that this pioneering work has helped broaden the meaning of life. And to our feature article for today, 10 Stories Behind Dr. Seuss Stories. It's written by Stacey Conrad for the www.mentalfloss.com website. Number 1. The Lorax In case you haven't read The Lorax, it's widely recognised as Dr. Seuss's take on environmentalism and how humans are destroying nature. The logging industry was so upset about the book that some groups within the industry sponsored The Truax, a similar book, but from the logging point of view. Another interesting fact, the book used to contain the line, I hear things are just as bad up in Lake Erie. But 14 years after the book was published, the Ohio Sea Grant program wrote to Seuss and told him how much the conditions had improved and implored him to take the line out. Dr. Seuss agreed and said that it wouldn't be in future editions. Number 2. Horton Hears a Who Somehow Geisel's books find themselves in the middle of controversy. The line from the book, A person's a person no matter how small, has been used as a slogan for pro-life organisations for years. It's often questioned whether that was Seuss's intent in the first place, but I would say not. When he was still alive, he threatened to sue a pro-life group unless they removed his words from their letterhead. Carl Zobel, the attorney for Dr. Zeus's interests and for his widow Audrey Geisel, says that she doesn't like people to hijack Dr. Seuss characters or material to front their own points of view. Number 3. If I Ran the Zoo, published in 1950, is the first recorded instance of the word nerd. Number four. Dr. Zeus wrote The Cat in the Hat because he thought the famous Dick and Jane primers were insanely boring. Because kids weren't interested in the material, they weren't exactly compelled to use it repeatedly in their efforts to learn. So, The Cat in the Hat was born. Number five. Green Eggs and Ham. Bennett Cerf, Dr. Seuss's editor, bet him that he couldn't write a book using 50 words or less. The Cat in the Hat was pretty simple after all, and it used 225 words. Not one to back down from a challenge, Mr. Geisel started writing and came up with Green Eggs and Ham, 
which uses exactly 50 words. The 50 words, by the way, are A, am, and, anywhere, are, be, boat, box, car, could, dark, do, eat, eggs, fox, goat, good, green, ham, here, house, I, if, in, let, like, may, me, mouse, not, on, or, rain, Sam, say, see, so, thank, that, the, them, there, they, train, tree, try, will, with, would, and finally, you. Number six, Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? It's often alleged that this book was written specifically about Richard Nixon, but the book came out only two months after the whole Watergate scandal. It's pretty unlikely that the book could have been conceived of, written, edited and mass-produced in such a short time. Also, Seuss never admitted that the story was originally about Nixon. That's not to say he didn't understand how well the two flowed together. In 1974, he sent a copy of Marvin K. Mooney to his friend, Art Buckwald, at the Washington Post. In it, he crossed out Marvin K. Mooney and replaced it with Richard M. Nixon, which Buckwald reprinted in its entirety. Oh, and one other tidbit. This book contains the first ever reference to crunk, although its meaning is a bit different than today's crunk. Number seven. Yertle the Turtle equals Hitler? Yep, if you haven't read the story, here's a little overview. Yertle is the king of the pond, but he wants more. He demands that other turtles stack themselves up so he can sit on top of them to survey the land. Mac, the turtle at the bottom, is exhausted. He asks Yertle for a rest. Yertle ignores him and demands more turtles for a better view. Eventually, Yertle notices the moon and is furious that anything dare be higher than himself, and is about ready to call for more turtles when Mac burps. This sudden movement topples the whole stack, sends Yertle flying into the mud, and frees the rest of the turtles from their stacking duty. Dr. Seuss actually said Yertle was a representation of Hitler. Despite the political nature of the book, none of that was disputed at Random House, what was disputed was Max Burp. No one had ever let loose a burp in a children's book before, so it was a little dicey. In the end, obviously, Mac burped. Number 8. The Butter Battle Book is one I had never heard of, perhaps with good reason. It was pulled from the shelves of libraries for a while because of the reference to the Cold War and the arms race. Yooks and Zooks are societies who do everything differently. The Yooks eat their bread with the butter side up, and the Zooks eat their bread with the butter side down. Obviously one of them must be wrong, so they started building weapons to outdo each other. The tough tufted prickly snickberry switch, and the triple sling jigger, the jigger rock snatchem, and the kickaboo kid. The eight-nozzled elephant-toted boom blitz and the utterly sputter and the bitsy big boy boomeroo. The book concludes with each side ready to drop their ultimate bombs on each other, but the reader doesn't know how it actually turns out. Number nine. Oh, the places you'll go is Dr. Seuss's final book published in 1990. 
It sells about 300,000 copies every year because so many people give it to college and high school graduates. Number 10. No Dr. Seuss post would be complete without a mention of how the Grinch stole Christmas. I couldn't find much on the book, however, so here are a few facts about the Dr. Seuss-sanctioned cartoon. Frankenstein's monster himself, Boris Karloff, provided the voice of the Grinch and the narration for the movie. Seuss was a little wary of casting him because he thought his voice would be too scary for kids. Can you imagine the cartoon without any other voice? If you're wondering why they sound a bit different, it's because the sound people went back to the Grinch's parts and removed all of the high tones in Karloff's voice. That's why the Grinch sounds so gravelly. Tony the Tiger, a.k.a. Thurl Ravenscroft, is the voice behind You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. He received no credit on screen. So Dr. Seuss wrote to newspaper columnists to tell them exactly who had sung the song. When I woke this morning and checked my inbox on my computer, lo and behold, there was an email from Nick Jones. Nick Jones and his charming wife love to dance the tango, and they're currently visiting Australia to do some dancing, of course. I was very taken with his email and the stories it contained, so to you, Nick, and your charming wife, I will dedicate the music for this story. It's called Last Tango in New York City, and it's by The Four Bags. The story, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with the tango, but I thought it would be good background music to this one. From the www.todayifoundout.com website, why do the British pronounce Z as Z? Z sounds perfectly normal to me. It's not just the British that pronounce Z as Z. The vast majority of the English-speaking world does this. The primary exception, of course, is in the United States, where the letter Z is pronounced Z. The British and others pronounce Z as Z, owing to the origin of the letter Z, the Greek letter Zeta. This gave rise to the old French Zede, which resulted in English Z around the 15th century. As to why people in the United States call Z, Z, it is thought that it is simply adopted from the pronunciation of the letters B, C, D, E, G, P, T and V. The first known instance of Z being recorded as the correct pronunciation of the letter Z was in Lye's New Spelling Book, published in 1677. There still was a variety of common pronunciations in North America after this, 
but by the 19th century this changed in the United States with Z firmly establishing itself thanks to Daniel Webster putting his seal of approval on it in 1827 and of course the alphabet song copyrighted in 1835 rhyming Z with me. Because of the alphabet song the pronunciation of Z as Z has started to spread much to the chagrin of elementary school teachers, the English-speaking world over. This has resulted in them often having to reteach children the correct pronunciation of Z as Z, with the children having previously learned the song and the letter the American English way from shows such as Sesame Street. Naturally, kids are often resistant to this change owing to the fact that T, U, V, W, X, Y and Z, now I know my ABCs, next time won't you sing with me, just doesn't quite sound as cohesive as T, V, Z and me. Because of the problem at the end of the alphabet song with Z, not really fitting, a variety of other endings have been created to accommodate this such as this one, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Sugar on your bread, eat it all up before you are dead. Ooh, how charming is that? Other pronunciations of Z you might hear in the English-speaking world include Zod, Zad, Zad, Izod, Izard, and Uzzard. Well, that was a terribly confusing article to read because every time I saw the letter Z written, I didn't know whether to say Z or Z. I couldn't get it into my head. Ah, I think Dr. Seuss has got me. to something more sombre and thought-provoking from the www.bbc.co.uk website His Dark Charisma Adolf Hitler was an unlikely leader but he still formed a connection with millions of German people generating a level of charismatic attraction that was almost without parallel It is a stark warning for the modern day says historian Lawrence Rees At the heart of the story of Adolf Hitler is one gigantic, mysterious question. How was it possible that a character as strange and personally inadequate as Hitler ever gained power in a sophisticated country at the heart of Europe and was then loved by millions of people? The answer to this vital question is to be found not just in the historical circumstances of the time, in particular the defeat of Germany in World War I, and the depression of the early 1930s, but in the nature of Hitler's leadership. It's this aspect of the story that makes this history particularly relevant to our lives today. 
Hitler was the archetypal charismatic leader. He was not a normal politician, someone who promises policies like lower taxes and better health care, but a quasi-religious leader who offered almost spiritual goals of redemption and salvation. He was driven forward by a sense of personal destiny he called providence. Before World War I he was a nobody, an oddball who could not form intimate relationships, was unable to debate intellectually and was filled with hatred and prejudice. But when Hitler spoke in the Munich beer halls in the aftermath of Germany's defeat in World War I, suddenly his weaknesses were perceived as strengths. His hatred chimed with the feelings of thousands of Germans who felt humiliated by the terms of the Versailles Treaty and sought a scapegoat for the loss of the war. His inability to debate was taken as strength of character and his refusal to make small talk was considered the mark of a great man who lived apart from the crowd. More than anything, it was the fact that Hitler found that he could make a connection with his audience that was the basis of all his future success, and many called this connection charisma. The man gave off such a charisma that people believed whatever he said, says Emil Klein, who heard Hitler speak in the 1920s. But Hitler did not hypnotise his audience. Not everyone felt this charismatic connection. You had to be predisposed to believe what Hitler was saying to experience it. Many people who heard Hitler speak at this time thought he was an idiot. I immediately disliked him because of his scratchy voice, says Herbert Richter, a German veteran of World War I who encountered Hitler in Munich in the early 1920s. He shouted out really, really simple political ideas. I thought he wasn't quite normal. In the good economic times during the mid to late twenties in Germany, Hitler was thought charismatic by only a bunch of fanatics. So much so that in the 1928 election, the Nazis polled only 2.6% of the vote. Yet less than five years later, Hitler was Chancellor of Germany and leader of the most popular political party in the country. What changed was the economic situation. In the wake of the Wall Street crash of 1929, there was mass unemployment in Germany and banks crashed. The people were really hungry, says Jutta Rüdiger, who started to support the Nazis around this time. It was very, very hard, and in that context, Hitler with his statements seemed to be the bringer of salvation. She looked at Hitler and suddenly felt a connection with him. I myself had the feeling that here was a man who did not think about himself and his own advantage, but solely about the good of the German people. Hitler told millions of Germans that they were Aryans, and therefore special, and racially better people than everyone else, something that helped cement the charismatic connection between leader and led. He did not hide his hatred, his contempt for democracy, or his belief in the use of violence to further political ends from the electorate. But crucially, he spoke out only against carefully defined enemies, like communists and Jews. Since the majority of ordinary Germans were not in these groups, as long as they embraced the new world of Nazism, they were relatively free from persecution, at least until the war started to go badly for the Germans. This history matters to us today, 
not because history offers lessons. How can it, since the past can never repeat itself exactly, but because history can contain warnings. In an economic crisis, millions of people suddenly decided to turn to an unconventional leader they thought had charisma because he connected with their fears, hopes and latent desire to blame others for their predicament. And the end result was disastrous for tens of millions of people. It's bleakly ironic that German Chancellor Angela Merkel was greeted in Athens recently with swastika banners carried by angry Greeks protesting at what they see as German interference in their country. Ironic because it is in Greece itself, amid terrible economic crisis, that we see the sudden rise of a political movement like the Golden Dawn that glories in its intolerance and desire to persecute minorities. And it is led by a man who has claimed there were no gas chambers in Auschwitz. Can there be a bigger warning than that? The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes can be found at www.origins.info. And I'd like to dedicate today's show to my friend Bob from Texas. I hope you're feeling well soon, mate, and all goes well for you. And to bring the podcast to a close, a story from the smithsonianmag.com website. Aldous Huxley's predictions for the year 2000 AD. And it was posted by Matt Novak. There seems to be two occasions when people most enjoy making predictions. Anniversaries? Think the American Bicentennial. New Year's, etc., and dates that include round numbers, any year ending in zero. Such was the case in 1950 when many people halfway through the 20th century enjoyed predicting what life would be like in the year 2000, obviously the roundest numbered year of our modern age. The January 1950 issue of Red Book magazine asked, What will the world of 2000 AD be like? Will the machine replace man? How will our children and grandchildren spend their leisure? How indeed will they look? The mag asks four experts, curiously all men, given the Red Book was and is a magazine aimed at women, and what the world may look like 50 years hence. 
Aldous Huxley, author of the 1931 dystopian novel Brave New World, looked at working life in the year 2000. Specifically how people might work in the home, in the laboratory, in the office, in the factory, and on the farm. Aldous Huxley began his article by describing the major challenges that would confront the world at the dawn of the 21st century. He predicted that the global population would swell to 3 billion people, a figure less than half of the 6.1 billion that would prove to be a reality by 2000. During the next 50 years, mankind will face three great problems. The problem of avoiding war, the problem of feeding and clothing a population of two and a quarter billions, which by 2000 AD will have grown to upward of three billions, and the problem of supplying these billions without ruining the planet's irreplaceable resources. Let us assume, and unhappily, it is a large assumption, that the nations can agree to live in peace. In this event, mankind will be free to devote all its energy and skill to the solution of its other major problems. Huxley's predictions for food production in the year 2000 are largely a call for the conservation of resources. He correctly points out that meat production can be far less efficient than using agricultural land for crops. Moreover, he discusses the growing importance of synthetic materials a reality we take for granted in so many ways today. His description of synthetics was incredibly prescient, if not very surprising, coming from a man whose most famous novel imagined a high-tech world built on mass production. By 2000, let us hope, the peoples of the world will have adopted a program to increase the planet's output of food and other necessities, while conserving its resources. Because all available land will be needed for food production, concerted efforts will be made to derive all the fibres used for textiles from inorganic materials or vegetable wastes. Food crops will be cultivated on the land now devoted to cotton, flax, hemp and jute, and since wool will no longer be used, the huge flock of sheep which now menace Australian and North American watersheds will be greatly diminished. Because of the need to give overworked soil a rest and to extract the greatest possible number of calories from every acre under cultivation, meat production, which is fantastically wasteful of land, will be cut down and increasing attention will be given to the products, vegetable, no less than animal, of the ocean. Landlock inlets, lakes, ponds and swamps will be scientifically farmed. In many parts of the world, forests are being recklessly destroyed. To conserve them, we shall have to develop new types of synthetic building materials and new sources of paper. That the production of a comic supplement should entail the death of thousands of magnificent trees is a scandal which cannot much longer be tolerated. How will individuals be affected by all of this? For many farmers, the changes will mean a shift from one kind of production to another. For many others, they will entail a transfer to the chemical industry. For the chemical industry is bound to grow more important as world erosion compels us, for the sake of the land, to rely increasingly on synthetics derived from practically inexhaustible inorganic materials. The world of 2000 AD was seen by many to be one of increased leisure. 
but Huxley sees that potential for better working conditions and increased standards of living as obtainable only through a sustained peace. These same predictions of a leisure-oriented society by Huxley and others living mid-century would inspire the push-button cliché later parodied in the 1962 TV show The Jetsons. Perhaps Huxley's most inaccurate prediction is his assumption that an increase in productivity will mean an increase in wages for the average worker. As we've seen over the last half a century, increased worker productivity has not led to dramatic increases in wages. The enormous technological advances will be recorded during the next 50 years is certain. But to the worker as a worker, such advances will not necessarily be of great significance. It makes very little difference to the textile worker whether the stuff he handles is the product of a worm, a plant, a mammal or a chemical laboratory. Work is work, and what matters to the worker is neither the product nor the technical process, but the pay, the hours, the attitude of the boss, the physical environment. To most office and factory workers in 2000, the application of nuclear fission to industry will mean very little. What they will care about is what their fathers and mothers care about today. Improvement in the conditions of labour. Given peace, it should be possible within the next 50 years to improve working conditions very considerably. Better equipped workers will produce more and therefore earn more. Meanwhile, most of the hideous relics of the industrial Middle Ages will have been replaced by new factories, offices and homes. More and more factories and offices will be relocated in small country communities where life is cheaper, pleasanter and more genuinely human than in those breeding grounds of mass neurosis, the great metropolitan centres of today. Decentralisation may help to check that march towards the asylum, which is a threat to our civilization hardly less grave than that of erosion and the A-bomb. Huxley rightly predicts the world would have to face the challenges that go along with having an ageing population. Huxley himself would only live to see the year 1963, but he acknowledged what life would be like for young people reading his article. If the finished product means little to the worker, it means much to the housewife. New synthetic building materials will be easier to keep clean. New solar heating systems will be cheaper and less messy. Electronics in the kitchen will greatly simplify the task of the cook. In a word, by 2000, the business of living should have become decidedly less arduous than it is at present. But though less arduous, it will last on the average a good deal longer. In 2000, there will be more elderly people in the world than at any previous time. In many countries, the citizens of 65 and over will outnumber the boys and girls of 15 and under. Pensions and a pointless leisure offer no solution to the problems of an ageing population. In 2000, the younger readers of this article, who will then be in their 70s, will probably be inhabiting a world in which the old are provided with opportunities for using their experience and remaining strength in ways satisfactory to themselves and valuable to the community. All in all, I'd say that Huxley's predictions were fairly accurate in spirit, 
Like so many prominent people of the mid-century, he fails to predict or consider the dramatic social changes that would occur which had a direct impact on the 21st century workforce. But his idea that work is work and people simply want to find the best work they can with the best conditions in pay seems to be a timeless observation. What do you say? I'm by no means an expert on Huxley and would welcome the opinions of others who may be able to read between the lines and offer insight into his vision of the year 2000. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 136 of the Origins podcast. It's been a while since I've done one, but I've had heaps of things going on and some problems with family, etc., and uh, I just haven't had time to sit down and get going. But things seem to have calmed down, so hopefully I'll get some more shows out on a more regular basis. Thank you to those of you who have provided feedback over the past few weeks via email or iTunes or wherever. It's greatly appreciated. So until next time, whether it be Mysteries Abound or the Origins Podcast, this is Paul saying bye for now, everyone, and thank you for your support. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.